You might uh, like to keep your Bibles open at that passage as we'll come to it in a minute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Acts uh, where we can read of you working through your local church. And we pray that tonight your Holy Spirit would speak to us clearly from these words. Amen. Well, I don't know um, if you've had the same experience that I've had. When I was a child and a young person, my parents would uh, say to me, um, "Those, those friends of yours, they're good examples to you, follow them. And they would also say, avoid those people, they are not good examples for you to follow you might have had a similar sort of experience. And we're going to be looking at the good and the bad examples later on in the sermon. But before that, we need to look at uh, some of the things that are going on. But let's just have a quick look at examples to start with. I've titled this uh, sermon, The Work of the Holy Spirit Within the Early Church. So, I went on the web and I I asked the web, what's a good example for children today? And it came up with this, Frodo. You might well have come across Frodo in that uh, famous book, Lord of the Rings. But then I came up with perhaps an even more interesting example of a good example. Benjamin Franklin, that uh, North American uh, president, said a good example is the best sermon. And that's what we'll be seeing later on. But what about bad examples? I don't know whether you can read that. They're just meant to be humorous, but you've got the teacher there who's an English teacher and can't really speak English very well. Um, I shall try to use cartoons a little bit to lighten some of it. So bad examples. But let's uh, go back to the account the story so far that we've got. Because we, if you are a visitor, we've, we're in this uh, series in Acts. And uh, just before the passage that we had read to us, Peter and John were put in prison because they were, uh, well, they were preaching and healing people and that sort of stuff. And uh, the authorities didn't like it, but they couldn't really do a lot about it. So they eventually released them And uh, Peter and John went back to the company of believers who then turned to God in praise and prayer. And that is what we heard really last week with Jonathan, particularly the prayer items and issues concerning prayer. And what did they pray for? Well, they prayed for power power in preaching, power in spreading the word, for power of healing, miraculous works, signs and wonders to be done in Jesus' name. And after this prayer, we read in verse 31, just before our passage, that the place again was shaken a fresh time with a further outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the second major outpouring, and all of the purviol present spoke with power concerning God's word. 
And so within these four chapters that we've had so far, we've had two major outpourings of the Holy Spirit upon the same believers. So we can take from this that there may well be more than one occasion when the Holy Spirit will come upon this. And we see also that a crippled man has been healed, and we've seen also the power of Peter's preaching. And what do they do? Well, they pray for more healings, more miracles, more signs and wonders, and more power in preaching. And what's the result of all of this prayer and uh, action? Well, the result is that they all spoke with power concerning God's word, and they were all united of one mind, and they shared all things together. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, isn't this a wonderful application or a wonderful model for us today in church? To pray for being united in one mind. To be united in one mind. To pray for more power in the spread of God's word through preaching and teaching and practical actions. So that's the background to verses 32 to 36. The fact that they were united in heart. That means that they were united in emotions. And they were united in mind, the way they thought. And this, of course, repeats what we've already read in chapter 2, verse 42, at an earlier session. After the initial filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which is what we're celebrating today, we we see that they were united together. We see that they listened to the apostles' preaching, they pray and share in what we would call communion together as well. And here again, we read that they had everything together in common. Now, what that means is that the difference in wealth and need were met by that group of people. And that's very important. They shared what they possessed together. The unity of the believers was seen in practical terms. And this was a change of heart and custom. Because the Jewish tradition and culture was family orientated. The family was the most important unit within society and the wealth of the family would be expected to provide for the extended family. But here we read that this changed so that provision for those outside the physical family was provided by the group of believers. Now in case we think well, this is a New Testament invention. In fact, it's something that comes from the Old Testament because we read in Deuteronomy 15 that the, the God said that there was not to be a needy person amongst them. There was to be no poor in the community of believers. Now, how was this achieved? How did they manage to do this? Well, we read here, don't we, that those that had land or houses, they sold them, they brought the, the, uh, the, the money that came from the sale and they gave it to the apostles who held the money in what we would call a trust fund and then they gave it out to those in need. 
Now, if you think about it, this involved trust. Trust both in the apostles to be honest with the money and to keep it safe, but also trust and honesty in those who claim to be in need. Now, it's important that we understand what's going on here because, in fact, there was no law or no requirement that the believers had to sell their land or houses. How do we know that? Well, we know that because we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that Mary, John's mother, still owned her own home. But we can, I think, quite reliably assume that the body of people giving their property up for cash received honour and praise within the community of believers. So that's the background, that's the situation that we see in these first verses of our passage tonight. But what was the result of all this? Well, the result is that the apostles continued to preach and to teach with great authority concerning that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and we read there was much grace upon them. They showed Christian fellowship and generosity all from the results of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them that we read of in verse 31. So, when we think about the church today, uh, some people will say, well, of course, the church today is very different to the the early church. We've had 2,000 years of history. We've got structures and hierarchies and all the rest of it. Well, Milne, the commentator, writes about this passage like this. He says, although there is a gulf of difference which stretches between the Christian church of today and the one described here in Acts 4, effective ministry still calls for many of the identical ingredients. And so he says, yes, what do we need? We still need powerful prayer meetings, waiting upon God and calling upon him for his anointing blessing. We too need the outstanding hand of God to fill us with his spirit and confirm his word in ways that enable us to witness to others. We too need a spirit of mutual care expressed in sacrificial financial generosity so that there are no needy people among us. We too need powerful and persuasive preaching of the good news of the risen Jesus. We too need congregations peopled by sons and daughters of encouragement. Well, I think that's quite a good summary of what this passage is all about. So, Luke, having given us a description of life of the early church, then illustrates this with two named examples. Two named examples. What I've called the good and the bad. The good and the bad. Look at chapter 4, verses 36 through to chapter 5, verse 11. And this whole uh, uh, passage in front of us is an example of the Bible's honesty and forthrightness. So let's firstly look at the good, the good example, that of generosity that comes from a good man. We read that the man was named Joseph. 
He was a Levite. That means he came from a tribe uh, that was involved in temple uh, work. But he wasn't even from the, uh, the homeland. He was from Cyprus, so he's an outsider. But he was renamed Barnabas by the apostles, where the word Barnabas means son of encouragement. And we read later in chapters 9, 11, and 15 that he was certainly an encourager. Now, if you look carefully at this example, you see it's only two verses long. So why was it put in? Why did Luke include this? Well, perhaps because later in the story, he is a Christian leader conspicuous for his sheer goodness. We read in chapter 11, verse 24 of Acts, it says that he was a good man. He was a good man. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A good person to follow, even though we're given very little information about him. But he was a good example of what was going on in the church at that time. But what about the second one, the bad one, Ananias and Sophia? You'll note that much more space is given to them, in fact, about ten verses. Not, perhaps, a good example to follow, but an example to illustrate what can happen within a community of believers, even when the Spirit of God is very active. Now, doubtless, the generosity of Barnabas and others had gained them high credit within the church. And it seems to be that Ananias and Sophia wanted to share in some of this distinction. So what do they do? They sell their estate, but not being able to trust God for the future support or choosing to relinquish some of their temporal comforts, they agree to keep back a part of the price and to present only a certain portion of it to the apostles. However, they wanted the attention that the others got. And so what do they do? They professed to give the whole of the value of the sale thus enduring, endeavouring to obtain the full credit that the others had received without making uh, the, that same sacrifice of themselves. Now, it's interesting to note that this is the first record in Acts of sin entering the church. It's quite important, that. Because from now on, in the... Uh, in the um, in the Bible, in Acts, we see sin coming much more within the community of believers. But what was their sin? Well, it was a mixture, wasn't it, of ostentation, of covetousness, of unbelief. They didn't, want, they didn't rely upon God to, to uh, maintain them. It was a, a seeking of credit for which they didn't deserve and a pretending to virtue which they didn't possess. We see, of course, later in Acts and also in Paul's letters to the New Testament churches of some of the problems that sin as it came into the church. But through this account, we also see, though, the, the action of the Holy Spirit working through Peter. 
because the Holy Spirit gave the apostle the supernatural insight and knowledge of what they had done. It appears to show us that Peter, like Paul, had the ability to pronounce effective curses upon sinners. But the apostles here, of course, were God's representatives on earth. So the deception by Ananias wasn't just to a human leader, but it was to God's representative here on earth. Now, of course, as we consider this, we need to recognize that Ananias had the right to sell his property. And, of course, he had the right to keep some of the money for himself. But he didn't have the right to claim that he had given it all to the apostles because that was the method being used by the other followers of Jesus in that community. What he was doing was he was deceiving by intent and by action. He was deceiving by intent and by action. It's an account then of how two members of the community tried to gain credit for a greater personal sacrifice than they had actually made by offering up only a part of the proceeds of the sales. They were being deceptive and hypocritical. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because as we look at this community of this young church, we see the Spirit of God very much at work within the community. And it's interesting to note that Peter declares in verse 3 that God's enemy, Satan, is also present. In other words, where there is spiritual gain and spiritual growth, there is spiritual conflict. When Satan comes to a believer and tempts them into action, the believer must take responsibility for it. We read that in 1 Peter chapter 5, which says this, the believer must be aware of the power of the devil and resist him by standing in the faith. And that famous uh, uh, commentator and preacher of a few years ago, John Stott, said this of this passage. If the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, his second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. It was an attack on the church and the community. So it's a warning, I think, for all of us. It's a warning for all of us that we are in a spiritual battle. Satan's forces are prowling around. And we need to be aware of that as we seek to witness to our friends and our families and and spread the word. Now, it doesn't, there's no hiding the fact, of course, that this is a difficult passage for us today in the modern church because it shows us a difference in understanding of sin and its repercussions. In the first century church, sin was taken seriously and a world in which personal, a person convicted of sinning against the spirit might well suffer a fatal shock of, thought of, of the thought of having broken a taboo. This was a world which also believed in judgment. And we see this in the account of Ananias' death. 
by shock of being discovered for not having told the the whole truth. And so what we see here is that he died from heart failure. Though, note carefully that there's no indication in the passage that God had judged him and passed a death sentence upon him. But what some people complain about is that Ananias was given, given no opportunity for repentance. But moving on to the second one in, our, in this example, to Sapphira, his wife, in verse 7. Look in verse 7. She, unlike Ananias, is given the opportunity to be truthful and to explain the amount given to the apostles is in fact only a part of the price received for the property. But look what we read. No, she agrees with her husband and continues with the deception. Now, whether it was the shock of hearing that her husband had died only three hours ago or the charge that she also had set out to deceive the Spirit of God or a combination of both, she too seems to have suffered heart failure and so dies. Now, we might well ask ourselves, of course, why has Luke included this account in the Acts of the the Apostles? Well, surely to warn us of the consequences of our actions. We see here that God dealt with the issue of hypocrisy strongly and swiftly at this point in church history. Why? Well, perhaps because the church at this time was only just beginning to know what it actually meant to be the church. God was perhaps protecting the church by dealing with this issue strongly and swiftly, because he knew the effects that sin would have on the community if not dealt with quickly. And from this passage, we can also see that the Spirit of God is able to see man's thoughts, motives, and actions. And the result of Peter seeing the action of Ananias and Sapphira, for the community, of course, we read, was fear. Fear seized the whole church and all those that heard about what had happened. Now, of course, fear can be a good thing, a positive thing, as well as a negative thing. It can be useful because it helps to prevent danger. And so, we fear from falling off a tall cliff, so we stay away from the edge. If we have no fear we may well get into danger. And this fear by the church would have made them aware of the spiritual warfare that they were involved in and the reality of God, his actions and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I was thinking and praying about this, I wondered, is this what we find today in our church? The fear of sinful action and judgment can lead us to the saving action of Jesus on the cross, as well as concentrating on the love of Jesus and his death for us. It certainly had affected me as I came to Jesus in in my childhood. Because what we see, tend to see, is this lack of fear concerning sin and its results doesn't seem to have this effect. So therefore, what can we say about this passage today for us? What are the 
applications for hypocrisy. It's a difficult one, isn't it? One scholar said this, God dealt with hypocrisy in the ch- if God dealt with hypocrisy in the church today as swiftly and harshly as he did in Acts 5, then we would have to have a morgue in the basement of the church and in fact there would be no church at all. It's a somber thought. It's a somber thought, isn't it? Well, I've not heard of any reports of God striking uh, hypocrites down as we find in this passage. So that's a good thing. We've not that. But I think it would be a mistake to think that somehow God doesn't take hypocrisy as seriously now as he did then. Hypocrisy is a dreadful sin before God, now as it was then for those who are in leadership positions particular, and preachers like me from the front. There's great danger in it. Now, of course, this can be from deliberate actions of not living as we teach, but more dangerously still, it can, be give, be, can happen by giving the impression that we are one thing when we aren't. So to give you an example, for instance, if the passage in front of us was encouraging us that we should pray strongly, if I say that to you, then am I giving the impression that my prayer life is much deeper than it really is? We need to remember that Jesus, in his ministry, had a lot of hard things to say about religious leaders and teachers who were hypocritical, giving the impression to the people that they were holy people when clearly their hearts didn't show this. I think it's pertinent to remember that Satan seeks to destroy the unity of the church today, including using hypocrisy. So is there any way forward for us? Is there any good news? Well, I think there is. I think there is something that can help us to overcome hypocrisy. And that is honesty. Honesty about ourselves, honesty about ourselves to God and to each other. Because when you think about it, Ananias and Sapphira did have another option. They could have come before Peter and they could have been honest. They could have said, we sold a piece of land and we want to give you a portion of the proceeds to the church. Yes, we are keeping a portion back for our own needs and purposes because we are just not where Barnabas is with our walk with Jesus. If they had been honest, they they would have had a completely different outcome than they got. But for some reason, they were not comfortable admitting their weakness but they were comfortable trying to portray themselves as somebody that they were not. And so I believe that the, the, the way forward for us is to be honest with God and with each other. Yes, within our services, we do have regular confession times with God. But how often do we share our weaknesses with others in our community, whether that be in small groups or being one-to-one? Being honest towards each other concerning our faults and weaknesses can help prevent hypocritical actions 
and lives. Remember what Paul the Apostle wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, that we need to put off falsehood with one another and walk in honesty before God and with each other. Because surely the church should be a place where we can admit our faults, our failures and weakness, and accept others with their faults, failures and weaknesses, with the understanding that Jesus saves people with faults, failures and weakness, and makes us new through the death of himself on the cross and the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. We do well to remember that Jesus had hard words for religious hypocrites, but he also had compassionate words for those who choose not to hide their sin, but admit it and seek forgiveness. And that, I think, is the great way to finish, isn't it, tonight? That Jesus offers forgiveness. He offers forgiveness. He would have forgiven if Ananias had confessed his sin. We need to do the same on a regular basis. It's a hard message this this evening. It's one I hope that will bring comfort as well as challenges. Amen.